1: We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 111. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talked to archaeologist Sarah Klassen about using LIDAR in Cambodia. Let's get to it. All right. As I mentioned in the introduction, our interviewee today is Dr. Sarah Klassen. She got her PhD from Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona in 2018, an MA from Arizona State University in Tempe, Arizona from in 2013, and her BA in Anthropology with Honors and Religion from Dartmouth College in 2010. Dr. Claussen is currently a Social Studies and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, B.C. Her current research project builds on new evidence suggesting that Angkor Wat was the central node in a complex urban network spreading across mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, in recent years, imagery from two LIDAR missions organized by the Cambodia Archaeological LIDAR Initiative, or CALI, and the Khmer Archaeology LIDAR Consortium, I love things that are called consortiums, and the Greater Anchor Project, or GAP, were used to map seven previously concealed and undocumented dense urban landscapes surrounded by much lower density peripheries. The revelation of these urban areas suggests that a complex web of agricultural and occupational spaces linking more densely inhabited urban nuclei may have been a ubiquitous defining feature of Khmer landscapes. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Welcome, Paul.
3: How you doing today, Chris?
2: Hi. Not too bad, man. As we're recording this, it's probably middle of August. It's August 13th, and uh, we had a weird cold spell in, in Reno, but we're back up to high temperatures. So I guess all is well with the world. There you go. So... All right. Well, we have a guest today. Before I start, though, I'm going to try my best in post-production, and maybe I've already done this, uh, to remove this weird sound that is coming through the internet and we can't figure out how to get rid of it. (laughs) So apologies for that. We're just going to deal with it and move on because uh, hopefully the content wins out and I think she's going to sound great anyway. So welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Hi. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me.
2: No problem. No problem. So, uh, our producer, Jamie, uh, found you and, and brought you into the show, and she said we were going to talk specifically about um, some of your uh, work in Cambodia. So why don't we just start off by asking what led you to Cambodia first off?
1: So I'm an archaeologist. I graduated a couple years ago with my Ph.D. Uh, why Cambodia? I um, spent a year in Korea before I started graduate school, and I was teaching English for a one out there, and they actually went out of business two months before graduate school started. So I used that two months to travel around Southeast Asia and fell in love with the, the region during that time. So then when I went to graduate school, I had to pick which area of the world I would focus on for a couple different reasons. I switched areas from the area that I originally went into grad school working on. And I thought, why not Southeast Asia? And it turned out there wasn't a ton of work being done um, in the United States archaeologists working in the region. So I teamed up with a couple of the groups that were there and the rest is history.
2: Very nice, very nice. So how did you decide what you were going to study specifically in Cambodia? What led you to what we're going to talk about later?
1: So I was specializing in GIS, geographic information system analysis, and Mm -hmm. water management at the time. Mm -hmm. And the team that I'm now working with had just acquired LIDAR data over Angkor, So it's kind of perfect timing in that they had this data and I had the exact skills to work with the data. So it worked out perfectly.
3: That's fortuitous.
1: It is fortuitous. Absolutely.
3: So I was looking at your, uh, you've got a very nice website, a uh, personal website uh, with details about some of your work and so on. But uh, right at the top, you have something that, that intrigues me. You say adaptive capacity and resilience. And I assume that these are central to the uh, to the, what you're looking at in Cambodia in and around Angkor Wat. Uh, what do you mean by these?
1: So I was looking at the resilience of the water management system to mm-hmm. shocks and stresses, especially climatic, but also social pressures. And resilience is a great word and it's a great concept and tool that not only archaeologists but a lot of people dealing with human environmental interactions use all the time. But it can be a little bit difficult because it's so nebulous so it can mean a lot of different things resilience to what, for example. So I use the concept of adaptive capacity to really break down what was going on with the water management system at Angkor over time and test it against specific expectations. Okay. So adaptive capacity refers to the ability of a system to respond to and prepare for stresses in order to improve the overall condition.
3: Mm-hmm. And then resilience is how it's actually adapted or didn't adapt uh
1: Correctly. Right, yeah. <laughs> resilience is kind of the overarching term, and then looking at the adaptive capacity is kind of one component of resilience hmm. or one way to
3: understand resilience. Right. So could you give us an example?
1: Yeah. So at Angkor, I looked at five different characteristics of the system. Mm-hmm. So the redundancy, the physical infrastructure, so the types of water management features that were built on the landscape, human capital, so the number of people in the system and natural resources so the amount of water that the water that the water management system could store and i looked at those over time and compared how they changed between periods so when we knew that something political was going on i could see what was different in the water management system during that time period and then also there's a series of very severe monsoons and droughts near the end of the time period so I could see what also is different in the water management system that based on these different characteristics of adaptive capacity.
3: What time mm. period is this?
1: This is the medieval period. Angkor thrived as the capital of the Khmer Empire between around 900 and 1300 CE. So
2: all right. Well, let's transition a little bit to LIDAR. Uh, first, tell our listeners, because, you know, the Archaeotech podcast, we like to educate and, and let people know what things are. And I know we've talked about this before, but in your words, um, what is what is LIDAR?
1: So LIDAR is a technology that we use to see what the ground surface looks like. The way that it works is we put the LIDAR device onto a helicopter and then flew it back and forth over the archaeological site. And it sends down pulses and measures how long it takes those pulses to return. So the pulses um, go down and maybe bounce off a tree or bounce off the ground, and then bounce back up to the device. And it measures the time that it takes. And that allows us to reconstruct what the different surfaces that these millions and millions and billions of little pulses are hitting. So even though the area is really uh, densely forested, and there are a lot of trees with a lot of leaves that these pulses are bouncing off of, some of them are getting in between the trees and reaching the ground and then bouncing back up from the ground. So that worked out to about two or three per cubic meter, Mm -hmm. per meter square, sorry. And then using those pulses that hit the ground, we can reconstruct what the ground looks like. So if you've ever been to Cambodia and been inside the Park of Angkor, you'll know that it's extremely dense. Mm
0: -hmm. So if
1: you're on the ground trying to understand what the, the surface of the ground looks like, it's incredibly different, difficult. We're in there with machetes kind of hacking our way through. And even still, the undergrowth is so dense, you can barely see what's under your feet. So with using by using this data, we can strip all of that vegetation away and see what the ground looks like and what types of things were built there in the past.
2: So the ground, that's actually really interesting to me because I've always never fully understood how the LIDAR saw through the vegetation, so to speak, because they always say, oh, it sees through vegetation, but really it's just randomly getting through the vegetation because of the (laughs) sheer number of pulses that you're sending out, right, in probably multiple angles and directions. And then you're just building that picture, you know, piece by piece, and then getting a picture of the ground. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Absolutely. And then it also gives us a really clear picture of what the trees look like as well. So we're teaming up with them. some individuals who work with different components of forestry and they were actually able to map different species of trees. And if you were to do this in the same area over different periods of time, you could track how the forest is growing and Mm -hmm. what types of species or trees are in different areas.
2: That's pretty cool. Um, So I'm a, I'm a pilot and I know exactly how expensive helicopters and helicopter pilots can be. <laughs> not only yes. that, but, but helicopter mounted LIDAR systems are probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't even know how much they cost, but they gotta be expensive. Um, so I'm sure you're renting this uh, this time on these sorts of things. So have you guys, have you personally looked, I mean, I know you've already done some of the LIDAR research, but you know, for future uses, have you looked at some of the drone mounted LIDAR systems and whether or not they would work in that area or are they not quite up to snuff yet?
1: No, we absolutely have looked into that because you're right. The most expensive thing about acquiring LIDAR is the time of the (laughs) helicopter, the pilot and the helicopter itself. The equipment is expensive, but it's kind of a one-time rental fee cost. But we're really limited by the airtime, and then that limits a lot of other archaeological projects from being able to collect the data. So being able to use something like drone-mounted LIDAR would be much more cost-effective and would allow us to cover... More areas in this region, but allow archaeologists to cover more areas elsewhere as well. Um, so at mm-hmm. the time, unfortunately, drones are really limited by their battery power. Oh yeah. So lidar equipment is relatively heavy for a drone, and then fixed wing fixed wing drones um, have a lot of restrictions to them as well in terms of where they can take off and land. So unfortunately, we're not quite there yet. But I'm hoping that we will be there soon.
2: Nice. You know, something I was just thinking of, we've talked about kite aerial photography before, but I've never heard about like kite aerial LIDAR or anything like that. I suppose that's just too heavy. (laughs) (laughs) The LIDAR units aren't quite small enough.
1: Right. And you want to be able to have a pretty fixed grid that the LIDAR... Is collected
2: on. Can't be bouncing around. Yeah. Right. Nice. So are you using other technologies like photogrammetry or infrared or anything else that is helping build this picture or are you relying solely on the uh, on the LIDAR data?
1: We absolutely are. So um I'll give you a little bit of background to kind of lead into what we're doing with other types of technology. So mm-hmm. the site of Angkor is in a floodplain, and because it was in a floodplain. Uh, Instead of just building a house or a temple on the ground, they actually built, mounded up earth that they then built these structures on top of. So when we're looking at the LIDAR data, we're not actually looking specifically at houses. In some other areas of the world, like the Maya region, they're seeing house platforms in the LIDAR data. We're not seeing house platforms, we're seeing house mounds. So we're seeing the mound that they constructed that they then built a house upon. Or we're seeing the mound that they constructed and then built a temple upon. And these are very distinctive morphologies, so it's pretty easy to identify and map them from the LiDAR data. So this works really, really well in a floodplain like we have at Angkor. But there are other sites in Cambodia that aren't on a floodplain, so naturally their construction techniques were a little bit different. So one of the other sites that I work at, Calcare, is um, one of those examples. So when we got the LiDAR data, it was really useful for some types of features, but we weren't seeing house mounds and house ponds and grid-like patterns that we saw at Angkor. So the question there is, do they have a different type of occupational pattern, or is it something that we're just not seeing because the LiDAR data isn't as well suited to this site. Right. So we went back to Cocare earlier this year, actually, with ground penetrating radar and did a few grids. And it turns out that sure enough, it's just a different type of construction. So the same types of buildings are there, but they are underground instead of being built onto the ground. So we're what we did at Cocare is we had the LIDAR data. So we were able to use that to zero in on areas that we thought were interesting compared to the other sites in Cambodia. So we would expect to see something there, but we're not seeing it there or, you know, it's just looking a little bit different than what we expect to see in different sites. Mm -hmm. So we're processing those results right now, but it's looking (laughs) like it's going to be pretty interesting and exciting once we have the final results from that.
2: Yeah. You must have quite a bit of historical data from that area on what, I guess sites like this typically look like right so you're kind of planning on around that as well
1: exactly and we have the lidar data from the other sites in Cambodia as well right right
3: i have a question for you here uh these uh house and temple mounds that you're finding these uh these are earthen mounds correct correct okay and the uh the buildings that would have been on them uh what what were those made of and uh can you see their remains at all on lidar or they totally uh, obliterated
1: So some of the temples are built with brick and stone, Mm -hmm. but those more durable materials were limited to temples, to the houses of the gods. So the houses of the everyday folk like you and I, and even the king, uh, were built a wood. And unfortunately, wood doesn't pr- preserve very well right. in the archaeological record. So when my colleagues have excavated some of these house mounds, they've found um, post holes. So we can see where the houses would have been, but we don't have very much left from the actual houses themselves.
3: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. But the temples, for example, all for the most part, all have moats around them. So they form kind of this horseshoe <laughs> mound with a moat surrounding a square mound in the middle and then mm-hmm. a little walkway leading into it. So it looks looks like a, a horseshoe, and it's pretty easy to
2: identify those using the LIDAR data. I mean, is this a moat that would, like, would have legit been filled with water or something?
1: Uh, it would have been filled with water in the past, and many of them still are today. Yeah. Or they're used um, as rice fields because they're collecting water naturally.
2: I mean, the moats were probably... Protect, I don't know why I'm focusing on moats. It's very interesting. You don't hear moats very often. <laughs> but it's. Um, I, I'm just imagining something in my head, like they're actually filled with spikes and deadly animals, or something like that, because they're probably protective. I mean, I don't know if there's any evidence of that, but um, or if they're just a water channel.
1: Um, most of them, they're probably not protective. They may have been filled with some deadly snakes and things <laughs> like that, but the the primary purpose is probably not protection. Uh, Later on at Angkor Wat, because Angkor Wat has a large moat around it, and so does Angkor Tom, it looks as though it may have been used as a fortress, but that's later on in time, not when it was initially built.
3: What's the scale of these structures?
1: They vary widely. So Angkor Wat, as you probably know, it's one of the largest religious monuments in the world. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely massive. And then in addition to Angkor Wat, there are about a hundred other large temples built of stone which are pretty beautiful and spectacular in their own right and then in addition to that we've identified over a thousand other smaller community temples so these would be like a local church or something in the united states and those are much smaller and when we go and investigate them there'll be a few pieces of sandstone and some brick but not as much as the the other
2: larger state temples well what I mean, what kind of questions is, uh, I mean, you've already talked about some of the stuff, like you're processing the results from the data that you've collected, but what are some other, I guess, high-level questions that this is bringing up that you can speak to right now?
1: Yeah, so the LIDAR really is transforming our understanding of the archaeological site of Angkor. So I don't know if you've seen any of the LIDAR imagery or if we can make that available Um, to listeners of the podcast. I suppose actually you can just Google LIDAR at Angkor and a couple of really good images made by by my colleague Damien Evans will pop up right away. But you can see that inside the areas around Angkor Thom and Angkor Wat, there are very clearly defined urban grids. Mm -hmm. So there are city blocks that are divided by causeways or roadways that may or may not have flooded during the wet season. And then a series of house mounds and house ponds within those city blocks. So this raises a lot of questions in terms of the urban form of the city and how it developed over time. So, for example, Angkor Wat is very regular. So each city, each city block within Angkor Wat has, I think, six house mounds and six ponds, and it's very regular, regular, and it was clearly laid out and planned all at the same time. Whereas some of the areas. Um, around Angkor Tom are more complex and the city blocks are all a little bit different from each other. And you can see how they've been changed and adapted over time.
2: All right. Well, on that note, I think we will take our first break and then we will come back on the other side and continue this discussion about LiDAR with Sarah Klaassen. Back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited
2: time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: Ba da ba ba ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me
2: all right, welcome back to episode 111. And we were discussing LIDAR in Cambodia with Sarah Claussen. And uh, let's talk about LIDAR a little more uh, because you can see so much with LIDAR. How can LIDAR help you see changes over time on the landscape? You know, I'm assuming older features, you know, different things, but can you describe what that, what that looks like?
1: So LIDAR can help us see changes over time in a couple of different ways, some more or less indirect than others. So LiDAR doesn't give us C14 dates for things, for example, but we Mm -hmm. can see relative chronological indications. So if something's built over something else, we can sometimes see that in the LiDAR data. So you can see where one channel uh, crosses over a channel that was clearly there first, or you can see where, you know, a a mound or a pond was here and they've kind of refigured it to its present form. It can also help us identify areas that are more complex than other areas of the landscape. So for Angkor Wat, for example, because it's so clearly laid out, it looks pretty, we're pretty sure that it was built during one construction phase. That's been tested now with um, archaeological excavations. Um, And that's compared to other areas like around Angkor Thom, where there's so much complexity in the urban form. That it looks like the space was shaped and reshaped over time.
2: It's building something like that in one construction event, you know, like one construction period, that sounds that sounds monumental.
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you keep mentioning, you know, I I think everybody's probably heard of Anchor Watt, and then you mentioned Anchor Tom, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Um, what does is this Anchor just mean like city or or temple or something like that?
1: Right. So yeah. Angkor is, it's referred to as the city and as uh, specific areas in the city. So Angkor Wat. Wat means temple. Okay. And then Angkor Thom is more of a complex that was established as Angkor Thom by Jayavarman VII, shortly after the construction of Angkor Wat.
2: Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see.
1: So Angkor Thom is a large walled city, as it were. And within that city, there are city blocks where people would have been living. And then there are also a series of different temples,
2: Mm
3: -hmm. as
1: opposed to Angkor Wat, which is really just one large temple.
3: And how many different sites are you uh, able to do comparative studies on there with uh, with your LIDAR data?
1: So Angkor itself, (laughs) it's really complex. It's not really kind of one urban area or one site. It's Mm -hmm. really a number of polynucleated sites. So one large temple was built in one area and that kind of became the nucleus of the archeological site. And then another large temple was built 50 years later, a hundred years later, and then attention shifted over into that area, but it all blends together over time. And then in addition to that, we've collected LIDAR data and a number of other really significant archeological sites and temples in Cambodia and the LIDAR data there was also very revealing in that it showed that these areas were not just temples. They actually had large areas of occupation as well.
3: Hmm. Interesting.
2: That you seem to have been interested in in lots of things over there, uh, which I can understand. I mean, Southeast Asia in this area in particular sounds just like there's a multitude of questions that need um, answers to. <laughs> and um, right. <laughs> right. one of the things I noticed on your website was what an image of under your publications tab, which uh, seems to be... Uh, a poster, I think, or something like that, that you did for ASU, but it's talking about pedestal typology at uh, Anchor. I mean, I can see these pedestals, but describe for our, our audience and our listeners who, you know, obviously have Audio medium, maybe we can put some pictures up or a link to this. But um, what do you mean by these pedestal typologies and why is this so important? I see five different styles, I think, here, or at least four, and then a style B.
1: For my dissertation, it was really important to be able to date all of those smaller kind of community temples. So the the temples that I was referring to before that would be similar to a church in the middle of a small town in America, Mm -hmm. for example. And that was important to me because these temples are the nexus of smaller communities on the landscape, smaller agricultural communities. So if I was able to date those temples, then I would also be able to date the surrounding agricultural land because we can actually see where rice fields are associated with specific temples. We can see kind of traces of these ancient field systems on the landscape. And one of my colleagues, Scott Hawkins, mapped those for his dissertation and did a few analyses with them. So for my dissertation, I wanted to understand how the landscape was utilized over time. And that included which areas were being used for agriculture during different time periods. Mm -hmm. So the pedestals became important because almost every temple has a pedestal left. So regardless of how large the temple was inside of it, um, would have been a statue or a linga that would have been on a pedestal. So I was hoping that by designing or kind of sorting out the typology for pedestals that would help me uh, be able to date the different temples. Mm -hmm. So we did find a few different types of pedestals, which was actually useful. So now we can start classifying different pedestals into different types. It was useful for dating in that I could add it to a bunch of other attribute data that we had for the temples and then using the aggregate of all of that data i designed a semi-supervised machine learning algorithm nice. with a with a colleague and that um, using that algorithm we were able to predict temple dates with an average absolute error of around 50 years wow. so then i was able to go back and look at which temples were built where on the landscape and how that compared to different epicenters so these large state temples that are being built by the king in different areas for, between different time periods and the large water management features.
2: Isn't it amazing how something as relatively simple as these pedestals, like the the styles are not really repeated through time. Like we see that with projectile point technology and different, you know, shapes and things like that over here in North America and, and around the world. And I'm just amazed that somebody somebody 300 years later didn't say, hey, that old one over there that looks really neat. Let's make a pedestal that looks exactly like that now. <laughs> just to confuse well, so, archaeologists. So the, interesting,
1: the interesting thing is sometimes they, they do, but it, it doesn't look exactly the same. So it's right. kind of similar to how styles come back. So like the 70s, the bell bottoms <laughs> came back, I think, in the 90s when I was in elementary school. Bell bottoms right. were really cool again. But they weren't the exact same. <laughs> they had like little differences in them. That yeah. if you were trying to do a typology of genes, you'd be able to notice the difference between a bell mm-hmm. bottom from the 70s and a bell bottom from the 90s. So the right. things like that happen archaeologically all the time, which can actually be confusing <laughs> for archaeologists. <laughs> but usually there are subtle differences that we can pick up on and realize that, oh, that's actually just a tie back to an earlier style.
2: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Man, it's, uh, it's still pretty interesting, though. And I'm sure somebody has done a typology of jeans. I have no doubt about oh, that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah or
1: even yeah. um, Coke bottles. So every now and then oh, yeah. Coca-Cola will come out with some, you know, an, like an old-fashioned branding and bring back an old bottle style, which, you hmm. know, is nostalgic for people and probably sells more bottles of Coke.
2: But in, in that case, and probably with other things similar to these pedestals and, and everything else, technology to create these things change as well. So um, mm-hmm. like you, you look at historic artifacts, I I never really was a historic artifacts kind of guy until I moved to Nevada and had to be when you're dealing with old mining sites. And it's literally the only thing that can help date these sites. and. You can have a a style recreated from a 1930s Coke bottle recreated in 2015, but you're going to be able to tell that that was done on an automatic bottle machine and it's going to have the different marks. It might be a similar shape, but you can tell the technology that was used to create it by the way the glass looks. And I'm sure it's the same thing with um, some of these older stone uh, pedestals and even buildings and things like that. They may look the same, but the technology to create them was different.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and archaeologists can usually pick up on those Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah,
2: Those little changes. Nice. Nice. Well, speaking of technology, what's what's next for you in the next field season? I mean, what's the what's the season like out there? Did you go out there this summer um, or are you headed out there soon?
1: So I was out there earlier this year at Cutcare collecting the ground penetrating radar. So we're working on writing up the results from that. Now we have to write a report and submit that. And then once we do that, we're hoping to go back and investigate some of the things that we found using the ground penetrating radar.
2: And what's uh, what's on the hook for next year? Have you planned that out yet? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm hoping to get back next year, probably still working at Kukair. I have an agreement with them to work at that archaeological site for a couple of years. Um, nice. That's also a really, really interesting area. So Angkor gets a lot of attention because of Angkor Wat, but... Koker is interesting in and of its own. It was the only other city to become capital of the Khmer Empire mm-hmm. by Jayavarman IV. So, um, traditional narratives up to about a decade ago um, from inscriptions suggested that Jayavarman IV kind of built this city in the middle of nowhere because he wanted to change the, and move the capital from Angkor to Ker. And we're now learning that actually this site had a long period of occupation before. Um, the period when it was capital and a long period of occupation afterwards. So it's it's pretty complex and trying to sort out what led to the capital being moved there and um, why that site in particular and then why only for such a short period of time. It's all uh, very interesting. There are a lot of questions to be asked and answered at that site.
2: What do you think uh, in your estimate is sort of the... The biggest unanswered question of that area. Maybe it's something that just interests you, but you know, looking at looking at the entire area, what is like something that's just man, we can't figure it out yet, and you really want to know the answer. Is there anything that really sticks out?
1: Yeah. So one of the one of the things that we're trying to get the bottom of is where did people live, and we have a general idea <laughs> of um, where the palace would have been, and there are some indications of occupation around around there. One of my colleagues. Did a couple of seasons excavating um, at the palace kitchen, actually, among other other areas, mm. but it doesn't have the same urban morphology as Angkor. So we don't see those city blocks in really regular patterns as we do at Angkor. So that's yeah. one big question: is who is living there? How many people were living there? Um, what were they doing? And how were they living? Did they have the same types of houses at Angkor? Um, or, or was it something completely
2: different? I always think of China in particular as having like a really rich uh, and detailed written history going back several thousand years. That's clearly not necessarily the case for the area you're in, because you mentioned, uh, you know, 900 to I think 1300 years for anchor Wat. And which, you know, in time estimates is really not that far ago, not that long ago. So either Are there just no written records or historical accounts or anything like that that have been written down either in stone or in paper or scrolls or something like that? And then if not, like what happened to it all? Because it sounds like they would have kept those sorts of records uh, from just a city and a government basis. But it doesn't sound like you have that to draw from. We
1: have some inscriptions from temples. They're useful in the ways that they were written to be useful. So a lot of it concerns land rights and land sales and because they're in temples um, a lot of the inscriptions are about who founded the temple and who paid for the founding of the temple to make sure that um, credit is given where credit is due but we Mm -hmm. don't have historical narratives in the way that some areas of the world do that would make our lives a lot easier but we (laughs) do we do have some things so we know which kings were ruling when and the Mm -hmm. royal lineages and things like that. And then using that information, we're able to date a lot of some of the different temples with inscriptions based on which king was reigning during that time period and things like that. So the inscription, we do have some inscriptions and they are useful in some ways, but not as useful perhaps as we would like in other ways.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, Good luck with all that. That's all I had to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the temples actually, uh, Tapram, it has some really interesting inscriptions because it goes into detail about how many people were living in the temple and how many people were working to support the temple and how many dancers were full-time residents at the temple. And for that temple in particular, I think it was in the neighborhood of 6,000 dancers. So you can just imagine the amount of people that go into, that went into, you know, the building projects that were at the magnitude of the building projects in the Khmer Empire. They have 6,000 templars.
2: <laughs> I like to think about stuff like that, like those inscriptions. Like, these are inscriptions in stone that mention all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So On some the walls guy, of the temple. Hmm. So some guy was told, hey, could you write down all this just like, really boring data and take like the next five weeks or something like that to just in, <laughs> put this in stone.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly how much rice we need from each
2: right. smaller
1: temple that's, you know, involved in this system.
2: Yeah. So that we yeah. can
1: feed all of our 6,000 dancers.
2: That's right. That's right. We, we need to get this in stone, like literally write this in stone right now. So Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That so these big construction projects are are being orchestrated by the kings. Is there a sense of other construction projects going, uh, you know, being done more as community or individual projects, or is it all in these urban areas orchestrated by the people in charge? Do you know the answer to that? Does anybody know the answer to that? I yeah, certainly don't. That's just a kind of open-ended question.
1: We do and we don't. <laughs> so some of the mid-sized temples and some of the kind of mid-sized to large temples we know were commissioned by non-royal elites or family members of the royal family. So that is one thing that um, we're interested in looking into a little bit more closely and how that changes over time. Mm-hmm. So is there, you know, during the period of Jayavarman the Seventh, essentially all of the large constructions are under the name of Jayavarman the Seventh, whereas a couple hundred years earlier. There are a number of different fairly large temple constructions being commissioned, supervised, or at least like non-royal elites are taking credit for them. So okay. that just suggests a lot in terms of the political organization.
3: Yeah, it does. And it
1: looks like there's some it's, the dynamics shift a little bit over time in terms of yeah. the centralization of power.
2: Okay. Well, we are just about at the end of this, uh, Sarah. Thanks for all this information. This has been uh, just fascinating. I love that area. And we don't have enough podcasts about that area of the world, to be honest. So it's nice to nice to hear about what's going on over there. Um, what's next for you in your career? Uh, I noticed that you're at your current post for a couple of years, uh, according to your website. But what's, what's after that? Where would you like to go after that? Do you want st- to keep studying in Cambodia and answering questions? Or are there other areas of the world that you want to uh, move to?
1: Yeah, we have um, obviously a lot of work left to do in Cambodia. And we have a great international team working there. So we work a lot with Cambodian archaeologists and also Mm -hmm. teams from Australia and the UK and a couple other teams in the United States. So it's a really great group of people. And in general, we're pretty um, happy to work with each other and do comparative analyses uh, between the different sites that people are working on, kind of combining specialties there. Uh, my colleague Damien Evans is also in the process of collecting more LIDAR data in other tropical forest environments in Southeast Asia. And with that data, we'll be able to do some really cool comparative analyses looking at what urbanism looks like across the region. So not kind of not just restricted to the today's contemporary border of Cambodia, but across Southeast Asia. So exciting work is in the near future in terms of doing more regional comparative studies.
2: All right. Well, speaking of Australia, um, one of our sponsors and previous uh, podcast guests, uh, Simon Young of uh, Lithodomus VR, they're out of Australia. They do these basically 3D reconstructions, I guess, of uh, of different sites. They focus on a lot of classical sites, um, in like, you know, Rome and, uh, you know, across Italy uh, and other places like that. And then you can use, you basically download an app on your phone and you can experience via like the Google Cardboard in VR or something like that, the area and, and there's like sounds and and you can tap on things on a map and hear an audio almost like an audio tour. It sounds like you guys already have all the data they would need to do that for Anchor Watt and I'm not sure if they've been up there yet so I might have to get in touch with them yeah, <laughs> to think, their platform.
1: I think um, Google did a, a walk through so you oh, can nice. go into the website. It's not, it's not virtual reality that I know of but it's kind of cool that you can kind yeah. of walk around and click on different areas and look a little bit closer. So technology is really changing um, the way that people can visit a lot of these archaeological sites, Mm -hmm. making it a lot more accessible.
2: Okay, cool. All right, well, we will include a link to your website on the show notes for this page. And uh, for those that want to just go there now, it's www.sarahklaassen.ca. So go there, check it out, and we might pull some things off of there and put them on the show notes page so you can see that over at arcpodnet.com forward slash Archeotech forward slash 111 for episode 111. So, Sarah, thanks for coming on the show, and I uh, hope you get some great data analysis from what you did this year and <laughs> some some great data in the future years. Thanks for coming.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
2: You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public Store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode one eleven, and this is the app of the day segment. And I'm going to go ahead and head off with an update. Uh, a couple episodes ago, I talked about Motion X GPS, and it's a pretty versatile application for doing pretty much whatever you want. But I had some some pretty high level fundamental issues with it. One of the ones was I couldn't understand why I wasn't really accessing my cached maps all the time because I had cached maps, and but I was in a really weak service area. And it was just showing me that like grid format that everybody's used to seeing when there is no map. And it was really irritating me because I'm like, I cached this map. Why isn't it just showing it to me? Another thing I couldn't figure out right away was how to move waypoints into folders I'd created. Uh, And then the final thing was how to display all those waypoints on a map at the same time. I'm specifically working with a NOAA uh, marine map of Lake Tahoe right now. And uh, my wife and I have spent some time, you know, traveling around Lake Tahoe by boat. And I wanted a a way to basically sort waypoints into, say, boat ramps, gas docks, places where you can go to the bathroom, places that are like restaurants you can dock up to, beaches that we found that you can just go, places to sleep on the lake, things like that. And this is applicable to archaeology, of course, because you might have... um, different sites that you've ported in through a KML file and imported in here. Maybe you want to display all the prehistoric sites or all the historic sites, or maybe all the sites in one region or one survey area, or maybe all the sites recorded by a specific crew chief or something like that. However, you're going to organize those. So I actually... Shortly after we recorded that episode, I figured all that stuff out. <laughs> I had to do some had to do some research online and I got lucky with some other stuff. So let me tell you about the cached maps first off this thing uh, this app has a setting um, in this well, in the settings where you can actually you can actually turn off uh, and it's in the main menu settings, but you can turn off the map data. So I think they intended for like updating map data. I think they intend that to actually save, how should I say it? Um, Save data rates, I guess. So you can say, I don't want to update my maps right now. But when that's turned on, it will default to that. So that's what it was trying to do. Since I had a very weak service all the way around the lake, uh, I never really had no service. But when I had no service, the map worked actually fine. That should have been my first clue. Hmm. But when I had weak service, it would try to update that map regardless of the fact that there's a cached map. And it wouldn't show me anything right there because it was it was weak enough that it was trying to update it, but too weak to actually update it. Gotcha. <laughs> so it, the minute I turned um, uh, map data off, my cache map appeared and never went away and it was perfect, you know, mm. and it was, it was great. So, uh, so that was nice. Um, the next thing waypoints. So you, it has two default folders for waypoints um, and then there's a bunch of other default folders as well, but two of the main ones are all waypoints and recently added waypoints. And if anybody knows how to do this, let me know, but I couldn't find a way To actually add a waypoint straight into a folder. So there's nothing in the in the attributes about the waypoint when you create it about what folder it should be in. Nothing like that. So the workflow is tap tap twice on the screen to bring up the new waypoint dialog, give it a new name, you can move it around, do whatever, and then you create the waypoint. And then you can actually add some notes about the waypoint. You can add a photograph and the photograph shows up in the map view, which is pretty cool. Um, But To move that into a folder, again, this is the way that I found to do it, is in the waypoint screen, there's what's called the hamburger icon, the three little lines. And you basically, um, you can't do it from just any of the screens. I usually go into the recently added because that's where the point is. It's right there. And then I select move waypoints and then all of them become selectable if they're in whatever's in recently added. And you can just select the ones you want and then hit choose folder and then choose the folder and move those into those. So that becomes super easy there. Now, if I want to see all the waypoints, because it was, it's showing me. I know there's some algorithm, but it was showing seemingly like random waypoints, right? Like I don't know if it was the last like ten I had accessed or something like that, but I couldn't figure out any rhyme or reason to which waypoints it was actually showing me on the map, and it was really irritating. But if you go to, let's see, I'll go back to the map in case you happen to be following along. If you're in the map view and you click on the hamburger icon in the upper left-hand corner, there's a four, four places down under map options. There's one called signs and it's got this little uh, familiar teardrop kind of shape that you're used to seeing on like Google maps and stuff as its icon, you go into signs and then there's a show all a hide all group nearby signs. And then there's waypoint signs and track signs. And if you go into waypoint signs, what they're calling signs are actually the waypoint icons. And that's something I just, I'd never heard them called signs before. So uh, if I go into there, all I can, I can now look at just specifically waypoints. I can show all my waypoints that are saved on this device. I can hide all the waypoints. I can show certain types of waypoints. I can show certain map waypoints. And I can show certain folder waypoints. So I've got like Lake Tahoe ramps, Lake Tahoe sleeping, Lake Tahoe anchor points, Lake Tahoe beaches, Lake Tahoe gas, food, bathrooms. The confusing thing is if I I click on one of those, it doesn't change the word show to hide. It doesn't add a check mark to it or anything like that. So the only way to know that you've actually done it with any confidence is to just hide everything. So click hide all at the top and then go back and tap individually on the folders that you want to show and then go back to your map and you'll see that they're showing. So um, not a very good UI for that, to be honest, they should have a little check Mark for ones that are, that are constantly showing. Hmm. And the nice thing is it auto updates. So if I say show all ramps and then I add a boat launch to one of those folders, it will permanently stay on there because I already said show all ramps. I don't have to go back in there and, and click it again or something like that. <laughs> so, Again, very useful uh, once you figure out how to do all this. And that it, the app just became infinitely more useful to me once I figured all that stuff out. And it was really beneficial when we went out this last weekend and uh, and highly useful from that standpoint. And I think not having that knowledge has prevented me from using it in the field before, which is why I went to GPS Tracks, because GPS Tracks just kind of does some of this stuff naturally and, and in a way better UI. Um, but... One downside of GPS tracks is it seems like when I go into a folder and I want to show all waypoints, and let's say there's 400 waypoints in there, which I just did last April, uh, there was a ton of waypoints in there from this project I was on because we imported them all through a KML file. I mean, it would crash like five times in a row before it actually did yeah. it. <laughs> like <laughs> the app would just crash, it couldn't handle it. But this one doesn't seem to do that. Like I hit show all waypoints, and there's probably 600 waypoints in here from different things because I was just messing it around, messing around with it. And it's fine. It just okay. Yeah, no problem. I'm just going to display those for you. So, they each have their pluses and minuses. But this one, this one just became a lot more effective for me, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with what it can do. So,
3: yeah. Well, yeah. I was just going to ask you how it compared against GPS tracks, uh, specifically because of that ease of learning and discovery. I mean, I mm-hmm. a long time ago I settled on my reasons for liking certain programs or programming languages or anything, which is simply if it thinks the way I do. Right. You know, if it thinks the way I do, then I use it because it, I, I don't have this friction of trying to figure out what the programmers intended. Uh, they yeah. were thinking more along the same lines as I was and things come along naturally. I don't have to learn a program. It just comes more or less naturally. Um, yeah, And it seems like GPS tracks... Definitely comes along more naturally for you, but this technical difficulty that's having with the the number of waypoints uh, tips you, I guess, uh, a little more towards Motion X GPS now. So,
2: yeah, I think it's just a. It's, it's what I really would need it for. Like for archeology, span I almost still have to use GPS tracks because I paid the subscription to get the other datums. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing I haven't really experimented with Motion X GPS yet is can I switch it to, I can switch to UTMs for sure, but can I switch it to say an 83 or um, you know, off of WGS 84 or something like that. And I think I can, but it's just, it's, there's a lot more options for that specifically in GPS tracks. So again, Right, right out for the right time. And you're right. I think GPS tracks kind of fits with how my brain works too, a little better. That's why I was having such a mind block with Motion X GPS and their terminology and how they use stuff. And I'm, I'm not sure why that was, but that's, that's totally spot on.
3: Yeah. Well, I've definitely felt that before with uh, plenty of programs (laughs) where one fits and one doesn't just because of my expectations coming in. Uh, The other thing just briefly is uh, the data where you were in bad service areas. Uh, I think that we probably all experienced that. Like when you walk out of the house and you're, Checking your email really quick before you get in the car, and you're at the edge of your house's Wi-Fi, <laughs> yeah. and it just sits there spinning on you. And so then you oh, go yeah. and you turn off Wi-Fi, and it jumps over to uh, to the cell signal, and poof, your email comes in. Um yep. you know, so now that you mentioned that as a problem, it's obvious in retrospect why it would do that. Mm-hmm. But of course, when you're you know on the boat and you're trying to find a place to pee really badly, I, I could see, uh, <laughs> I mean wait a sec. why do you have bathrooms uh, marked for your boat? Isn't the whole lake technically? <laughs>
2: Well, there's certain bathroom functions that are easier in a lake than ah, others. Okay, when <laughs> I mean, you're out there for two and a half of them. <laughs> now we have we have a porta potty on the boat, but my wife refuses to let me use it because it's literally under our heads where we sleep. Yeah, oh, the head under your head. The head under the head. Yeah, so we we have it there. It's mostly it's a just in case for emergencies. I haven't even bought like the chemical stuff you can put in there Mm -hmm. that's supposed to cut down on smell and break down solid products a little better. (laughs) Um, But either way, it's going to smell like something like that chemical can't smell too good either. So I don't know if if we're ever going to use that, but if you have a, if you have a catastrophe, maybe I'll use that. But, of course, maybe you just jump in the lake, too. <laughs> hey, it's really warm over here. <laughs> oh, my God. No.
3: That's right. oh, okay, sorry for going there. Um, <laughs> not really. Uh, not really. <laughs> so, I don't actually have an app this time. Uh, what I've got is a little bit of an update on something I mentioned, I think, on one of the first uh, podcasts that I was co-hosting on. Um, so, I was talking about... Text editors and talking up the praises of Visual Studio Code and. A good year and a half later, it's still my preferred text editor. I'm hearing about it a lot. I mean, it seems to be the default one for a lot of different programmers at this point. One of my coworkers started using it not for programming, it, but, but for um, for to-do lists, of all things, right, uh, just because right. it's such a capable text editor and, uh, and really good for uh, And I realized that as this program is getting more useful and better and has more and more people using it, that there are lots, there are thousands probably of uh, different extensions for it. And there's one in particular that has really made it extremely easy for me to use and that one is called setting sync. Um, it's not an obscure one a lot of people know about it but um, but basically I have on my work computer I've got my work profile and I have my login for my personal stuff. I have a personal computer that sits at home that's got my entire world on it. I've got another computer that sits down on my workbench in case I you know have a programming pr- project to do there. Uh, and I use Visual Studio Code on all four different profiles, and I've got a bunch of different uh, you know configurations I've done. So the uh, the scheme that I like, the, uh, the 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 theme, the the fonts that I'm using, the different extensions I'm using. Uh, whether things go to tabs or spaces, if it automatically puts a line at the end of the text, uh, you know, just a whole bunch of little tweaks that I've done. And the setting sync allows me to have each one of these instances of this program all had the exact same layout, which is really huge because getting it, you know, just tweaked just so takes a lot of effort and a lot of use. And so before I knew about the settings sync, what would happen is I'd be working on my work profile and it was the one that I used most frequently for programming hmm. and it would be just right. And then I'd go home and I'd try to do something and It wouldn't do it the same way or it would look a little different or did something wrong you know i had different key bindings for example and it it was very frustrating so anyhow this this uh the settings thing it uses github it uses github gists which i have no idea what exactly they are the setup used to be a real pain but in the last uh major release 3.4 i believe they uh they kind of set up a GUI of, uh, of sorts, so when you go into the settings, there are a couple of buttons that you click in succession, and it imports the settings, and then you can just fire up a panel like you do for anything that you do in Visual Studio Code, and then either upload or download the, uh, the synced settings. And so now all four different profiles I have are all beautifully synced together, and they all work really nicely, and I have no friction going between computer A and computer B, and just sitting down and getting back to work.
2: Well, good. I, I love that. I use uh, iCloud and all my Apple devices for very similar things, you mm-hmm. know, to unify desktops and, and all that stuff. And I just love the the ease of with with which that can be done if you know what you're doing in, in a lot of cases. Same thing with the app I was talking about, MotionX GPS. Well, GPS Tracks anyway. I need to discover that with MotionX GPS because GPS Tracks has iCloud sync. Uh-huh. And then I, I actually recently purchased the desktop version of that so you can do work on the desktop. And then it just... You just hit the iCloud sync button. It syncs it up to the cloud. Next time you open your mobile device, you've got all the changes and it's way easier to work in that environment. So I like I I can appreciate that for sure.
3: Yeah, well, I don't think that they'd be able to do iCloud sync for uh, Visual Studio Code. Maybe somebody has an extension that does that, but that would (laughs) be limited then just to your to your Apple devices sure and uh and visual studio code one of the nice things is it's cross-platform so you know i don't use it on windows because i don't use windows for any work uh just some servers at work but um but i use it on Macs and i use it on linux devices uh linux uh computers that i use every now and then so Mm -hmm. you know it just brings it all together nice nice
2: cool okay well i think that's it right
3: yeah i'm good
2: all right sounds good well Thanks everyone for listening. Um, If you've got any topic ideas, of course, uh, send them over to us. If you've got any questions, send those to us. I'd love to have a just pure listener question and answer show uh, every once in a while. So uh, occasionally we will get emails and we usually handle those all at once. But if we had a slightly higher volume of emails, then we would um, we would take those in stride. And you can always click on whatever application you're using to listen to this on. If it's on a mobile device, take a look at the show notes and our contact information is in there. So you can get my email address, Paul's email address, and our Twitter handles right there. And we'll take any form of communication. uh, And we'll usually ask you if we can use your name or we we might just remove your name anyway, from the, uh, from the show. So Feel free to be open and honest and tell us what you think about different things. We, we didn't say drone too much, so you shouldn't be too oh. drunk yet in order to listen to this.
3: <laughs> we almost got by with it. You only said it once.
2: I know. I know. I had to say it at least once with her, uh, with Sarah. So, you know, we got that in. We, we, we covered it. But so anyway, yeah, I think that's all I've got for this week.
3: Yeah, I'm just going to reiterate what you were saying about uh, about listener comments, questions, comments, criticisms, all of the above is fair. If you if we've misstated something, uh, if we've reviewed uh, an app and missed major features for it, by all means, let <laughs> yeah. us know. I mean, it's it's all good content. And, uh, yep. you know, we come up here and we bloviate sometimes, but we're not necessarily the expert experts on everything we certainly don't want to be seen as the sole experts on anything we want this to be more of a discussion amongst uh, ourselves and people who know a lot more about a lot more things than we could possibly know the two of us and uh, you know and turn it around and bring it back out as content for other people who likewise are interested
2: yeah absolutely well stated so Okay. Well, I think we will call it right there then. And we'll be back next time. I don't know what uh, our new producer has in store for us, but we will see. I know she had some things on the hook. So we'll see. I'm pretty excited to have some regular content rolling in. So thanks for that. Thanks, Paul. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. See ya.
3: Thanks for listening to the Archeotech podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com archaeotech Contact us at Chris at Network.com and Paul at lugalcom Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening.
2: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just 7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com/members for more info.